We shall now turn to the Word of God, and we may turn just now to the portion read in Matthew's Gospel, the 10th chapter. And we may read from verse 5 of this chapter just now, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You will see here the twelve apostles. Jesus initially refers to them as disciples. But there comes a point when he actually makes them apostles. And uh, here we see part of their training in preparation for the Great Commission that they were to be sent on, as we looked at it last Lord's Day from Matthew chapter 28. And uh, we have here in this chapter 10 the Savior sending out the same twelve but in a different mission. It is very limited. Uh, Geographically, it is very limited. He doesn't uh, send them out into all the world. In fact, they're not even to go to the Gentiles. And they aren't even to go to the Samaritans. Now, the Savior has very good reason, as we shall see, for putting these limitations upon their ministry, because they're actually in training. They are training and being prepared, being taught, learning to fulfill the great mission that they are to be eventually sent upon. Now, this training of these apostles is tremendously important. Remember what we noted at an earlier stage. Jesus makes the promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he intended that he was going to gather out of all the tribes and nations of the earth that great congregation, uh, the church of the firstborn. But he wouldn't do it personally. He was going to do it through the instrument of men. And he was going to teach these initial apostles what the ministry was all about, the means that God intended, that Christ, the head of the church, intended to use to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. And you see... Uh, When we go, for example, over to Acts chapter 1, when the Savior is departing from his disciples, he gives them a very different message. Here in Matthew 10, they're not to go near the Gentiles, and they're not to go near the Samaritans. They are to stick to the area around Galilee and so on. Here in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 8, He told them, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, 
and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So it's very different. He has broadened their missionary uh, scope. He has given them a wider field to work in, but initially they are limited, and that is because They are in their apprenticeship, as it were. They are learning, and they are being prepared. Now, when we uh, go over to the epistle that Paul writes to the Ephesians in the second chapter of that epistle, he stresses to us how important these twelve apostles really are. Ephesians 2 And uh, verse 19, Paul writes, Now therefore, and he's speaking to these Ephesian Gentile believers, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. That's important. Fellow citizens. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. They are all fellow citizens fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom Ye also, you Gentiles, ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So you see immediately here how important these apostles are. They are the foundation of the early church, as it were. They are the foundation upon which Christ intends to build. And you all know how absolutely vitally important a foundation is. If the foundation is not right, the house can be as ornate and as appealing and as attractive as is possible. But if the foundation isn't right, we all know that the future is not very secure. So Jesus has to give a lot of attention to these 12 men. Now, you know that Jesus, as well as sending out the twelve, sent out on another occasion seventy. Now, that indicates that he had quite a number of followers at a certain time during his ministry. And he was able to send out seventy by twos to preach to the people Uh, limited on doubt like the twelve, but they were to cast out devils. He gave them power to do that and so on. But when we go to Mark chapter 3, we read this in verse 13. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. He, that's Jesus, goeth up into a mountain and called unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. So he calls people and they start to gather around him on the mount. 
and he ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. He called as many as he wished to gather around him and they witnessed him ordaining these twelve. He could have called any twelve. He could have ordained any twelve. But these are the twelve. Their names are given. And he ordained them that they should be with him. Wherever he would go, they would go. They had to be with him. They had to be under his instruction consistently. He had to teach them. He had to prepare them for the great work that he might send them forth to preach. Before they could go forth, they had to be with him so that it would be seen. These men have been with Jesus. As we said last Lord's Day, because Christ is absolutely central to the whole New Testament record of the beginnings and the development of the first century Christian community, Everything that Jesus says, absolutely everything he does, every response to every question, every parable, everything is of great, great importance. And the disciples have to be with him to see him, to hear him, and to learn and to understand how to respond to every situation, how to act and how to react in every situation. And I'll tell you, in our day and generation, we often have a very, very limited and indeed poor understanding of who Jesus really is, who he was when he walked through the scene of time. He was God, a very God, but also man of very man. His humanity was a real humanity. Jesus Christ was no jelly-spined weakling. He was a manly man. And he possessed, because he was human, a real individual personality. He had a human personality. Have you ever stopped to think, what was the personality of Jesus, the Son of God, really like? We all know that every one of us here, we have our own individual personality. And our individual personalities come out in the way that we all individually act and react to every event, every circumstance, every situation. And we react differently again and again. So what did the Savior want his disciples to be with him for? 
so that they might learn what his personality was like, who he really was. Didn't he say to his disciples on one occasion, who do men say that I am? Because they would all have their own opinions of him, but he wanted to know what they thought. They were with him, listening to him, observing and learning, and they had a lot to learn. Now this twelve, these twelve, Jesus sent forth. These twelve. What a twelve they are. Jesus called them to himself. If you go back with me, just a few chapters to Matthew chapter 4. We see there in verse 19, Jesus calling the first two of this twelve. These twelve. Here we find him calling the first two. Matthew chapter 4 and uh, uh, verse 19. He saith unto, well, we can read from verse 18. Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. What was the very first qualification to become apostles? Willingness and obedience. Those were the qualities that Jesus required. He called them, and their response was a willingness, an immediate willingness to leave their nets and an obedience to follow him. We don't have any evidence that they really knew what to expect or what the uh, following of the Savior would mean for them personally. They heard him again and again teaching, if any man will come after me, and this included them, and they are following him, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Now they probably at this point didn't know what that was going to mean. But there's the first qualification. Personal willingness and personal obedience. Then we read in verse 21 of this same chapter in Matthew, verse 21, going on from thence. He saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Isn't it interesting? These were fishermen. They weren't the scholars from the Sanhedrin. He didn't call, he didn't go and listen to the scribes or the Pharisees one day as they are judging some case and thinking, well, these are clever guys. These are smart fellows, the kind of men that I need for the great mission of converting the world. He, 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 he set them all aside. He didn't bother with them. These are the ordinary fishermen. This is the material. This, uh, in many respects, from a worldly point of view, 
very poor and mean material. But this is what he calls. And straightway they left the ship and their father and followed him. Now you have uh, in Mark's account of this event, uh, he words it slightly differently. In the first chapter of Mark's account, Jesus, it says in Matthew, or Matthew records, I will make you fishers of men. But in Mark, while that is exactly what he's intending, he puts it slightly differently. In verse 17, Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. They were going to become something they had not previously been. He was going to take this material and he was going to make it and mold it into something it had never been. He was going to take these men and my what a crowd they were. And he was going to work upon them and work within them and he was going to produce a little band who is, they were saying in Macedonia, these that have turned the world upside down are come thither. He made a mighty good job of these men. He called them from fishing in Galilee and they, their world was a very confined small world. They hadn't much of an idea of what lay out there in the nations that they were being sent to. But when he had taught them, and when he had wrought upon them and wrought within them, they were going to be changed men, and they were going to be powerful instruments in his hand. Now, we have to understand that the calling of them in itself is significant. Uh, Jesus, in the Gospel according to John, in the chapter 13, and verse 18, we read this. John 13, verse 18, I speak not of you all. Listen to the words. I know whom I have chosen. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus didn't think I've made a few mistakes. I never expected Peter to talk the nonsense that he talks. I never expected the sons of thunder to react as they do. I never thought I would hear the disciples disputing among themselves who is the greatest among us. He knew He says, I know the characters, the personalities, the gifts, or the lack of them. I know them thoroughly. And it's because I know them so well, that's why I've chosen them. Because as you know in the first epistle that Paul writes to the Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians that God doesn't cho- he hasn't chosen many mighty or powerful 
to do his work. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to the Corinthians, You see your calling, brethren, are that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and base things of the world and things that are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not. How low does God go? How low does he go? The things that are not non Descript, non-definable, the things that are not. Only God can do that. Only God can make something out of nothing. And this is what Paul tells these Corinthians. This is what God does. To bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So Jesus says, I know the material all right. I know what to expect from them. I expect disagreements. I expect foolish talking at times. I expect they're going to argue and debate about who's greatest and so on. I know, but I have chosen them. I have chosen you twelve, and I know what I've chosen. And so, because he knows them, he knows exactly how to train them correctly. What does he do? You will see what he has to prepare them for. We get a little example of it. We've looked at it in the past. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, the church is progressing. The apostles and many of the early believers in modern-day language They might be in a high, a spiritual high even, because they'd never witnessed anything like this. They'd never seen anything like it. And Pentecost, 3,000 added to the church when one sermon is preached. They'd never seen anything like this. And they must have thought, what amazing times we are living in. What power there is in this gospel message. What authority the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. What a power he has. What a mighty influence is the power of the Holy Spirit opening hearts. We can't do it, but he does it. Peter couldn't open one heart on the day of Pentecost. But God, by his Spirit, opened their hearts. And it's a very interesting thing. I said last Lord's Day that it was an apostle who preached the first mighty reviving sermon. But there was another great sermon preached sometime later by Stephen, who wasn't an apostle. But he preached the same truths. He stressed the same truths of how they treated the Savior and so on. And look at the difference you find uh, in the response to the same truth, 
to the same message. Acts uh, chapter 2, we read that in verse 37, when they heard Peter, they heard this, verse 37, they were pricked in their hearts. They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You go over to chapter 7 in the same book of Acts. And Stephen preached a very similar sermon, maybe a bit more lengthy, but he was stressing the same truths uh, with the same convicting power. And look what happens. Verse 54 of Acts 7. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. In Acts 2, they were pricked in their hearts. Here they're cut to the heart. The Spirit of God was applying the word to their consciences. In one case, they're pricked in their hearts. They're feeling guilty. Here they are cut to the heart because the truth has got in. But did they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? No. They stoned him. They put him to death. They didn't say, men and brethren, what shall we do? No, they took up stones to stone Stephen. Don't you see that without the Spirit of God, what will happen? To exactly the same truth, the same truth of God, the different reactions, when the truth pierces the conscience and gets right into the heart, some are going to cry out, men and brethren, preacher, what are we going to do? We need to do something to get right with God. On the other hand, there are those who are going to say, well, I hate what I'm hearing. And I don't want to hear it. And because I don't want to hear it, I will oppose and destroy him that's preaching it. And that's what happened in the case of Stephen. What a reaction. And we have to understand that by nature, we will very naturally rebel against the truth, even when it gets home to the conscience. And when we're cut to the heart by the sword of the truth, doesn't mean we will repent. Doesn't mean we will turn to the Lord in repentance. It may mean we'll just rebel even more and harden our hearts even more. But that's a little diversion when we come back to these disciples and how the Savior teaches them. You see, as I said in Acts chapter uh, six, how well they'd been taught uh, when there is a problem in the early church, as we looked at it previously. The Hebrew widows were being cared for, and the uh, Grecian widows were being neglected. Now, you have to understand when we're talking about Hebrews and Grecians, these are believers, these are among the early believers 
in the early church. Now, what were they doing as we looked at it last Lord's Day? The people had such a heart and such a spirit of unity amongst them that some of them were selling their lands and they were bringing the proceedings and they were laying it at the apostles' feet. They somehow or other recognized these men had been ordained by God. We don't know of anyone else that has such an ordination. We don't know of anyone else that has the commission they have or has the approval of the Savior that they have, so they automatically then give them this special place and they bring the the proceedings from their seals, they lay them at the apostles' feet for the apostles to be responsible to distribute these funds among the people. Now, whatever way the apostles were doing it, we don't know. But there was this murmuring then among the Grecians. And they were complaining because the Hebrews were being provided for and they were being neglected, but they were all in reality of the one stock, you see. The Grecians were the Hellenized Hebrews or Jews. The Hebrews were the Orthodox The Hellenized Jews, you see, were those who'd been scattered throughout the Greek Empire and had been influenced by Greek culture to the extent that they had to have the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because they couldn't read or understand Hebrew anymore. They'd lost the ability to understand their father's tongue. And so the scriptures were translated into Greek, into the Septuagint for them. But the Hebrews, they still stuck to the old language. And they still had their scriptures in the original Hebrew. And so they considered themselves to be superior. We really got the original. You Hellenized people... You've become adulterated in your thinking and you don't have the original that we have. And there was this superiority and inferiority uh, complex between them. And so the apostles are confronted with this problem. How do they deal with it? Now Jesus knew that many problems were going to arise. And the apostles had to be trained, and they had to be equipped, and they had to learn from him how to deal with all these problems. Now, look what happens in chapter 6 of Acts. And it's one of the things that I fear is often neglected or overlooked. The early church was not organized the way the present church is. It was not developed and it certainly was not organized in the complex way that the major denominations, for example, are in our day and generation. 
So how did the apostles, the only ones that had any real authority at this time among the early Christians, how did they deal with it? Well, they called the people, and this is what they said to them, verse 2 of Acts 6, the twelve, these are the twelve that God, or Christ said, I want them to be with me, and I'll teach them, instruct them, and so on. These twelve, they called the multitude of the disciples unto them. They called the multitude of the disciples. They didn't take it upon themselves to fix it. They didn't say, well, since you've come to us, we'll organize it, we'll sort it out. No, they didn't. You see, they weren't managers, and they were not managers of a charitable organization. The great things are made today of pastors, ministers, who are serving at soup kitchens and whatever else, and I'm not finding fault with that except in this respect. If that is what they do and neglect to what they should be doing, then it is wrong. And look at what happens here. They call the multitude of the disciples, them all, they call them all collectively. And they said, it is not reason. It's not reason. It's not a good enough reason. Yes, there's a problem. We recognize it. And things are not as they should be. It should be better than this. There has to be an improvement. But it is not reason and it is not good reason. It's not reason enough that we should leave what? The word of God and serve tables. We, no matter what problems arise, cannot neglect what we have been ordained to do. And we have not been ordained to serve tables. Now, it was they were not saying they would never serve tables. But they were saying this is not good enough reason. There might be a good reason on some occasions that we might serve tables. But there's not good reason at the moment to do it. And wherefore they said... Brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, that whom we may appoint over this business. But we will, listen, give ourselves. These were the early apostles. These are the ordained men who were to go with the gospel and preach it and teach it to the ends of the earth. What were they saying here? What spirit were they of? We will give what? 50% of our time, 80% of our energy? No, no. We will give ourselves body, mind, soul, and spirit. We will give ourselves 100% 
continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. You see what kind of a church we're talking about? You see what kind of Christianity we have in the first century? You see what kind of ministers we have? This is what they said. There's not good reason for us to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. That's what we've been called to. That's what we must devote ourselves to. And that's what they did. And so they called on the people. You fix the problem. You choose the men that you want, that you trust, that you have confidence in. And we will appoint them then with our apostolic authority and your agreement. They're your choice. You choose them. See the involvement of the people. The ordinary Christian, the ordinary believer, he's not in any office. They're there all together. They have a say in the matter. They're involved in it. And so often, we find that that is not the case in the churches that developed in the third into the fourth century. It was changing rapidly. And popery was beginning to establish itself. And bishops and archbishops were being appointed and they were ruling the people. But the early church was not like that. But Jesus was teaching them how they were to deal. There would be problems arising. And how they would deal with them. And they had to be men who knew before they were faced with any problem, what their duty was. And there were certain things they were not to become involved in. Even certain problems they were not to involve themselves in. It is really interesting to see how Jesus, as I said, he was no spineless weakling and he knew what you and I as mortals don't know certainly and he could see into the hearts of men and into the minds of men and he often knew what was motivating them and their wickedness to do some of the things they did even against himself <coughs> you go over to Matthew's gospel and over to the 22nd chapter of Matthew's gospel and you find there that the Pharisees and the scribes, these people that were constantly religious leaders, they were constantly trying to ensnare the Savior and trap him and entangle him in his words. And this is what we read in Matthew 22 verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they went out unto, they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Master, starts off very respectful, doesn't it? Master, we know that thou art true 
and teachest the way of God in truth, neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. You know what they were saying to the Savior? Jesus, you're a real straight talker. You don't mince your words. You don't beat around the bush. You tell it as it is. So we have a question. But they took counsel. And so it was a loaded question. It was a subtle question. They'd mulled over it. And what did they do? What was the purpose of it? To entangle Jesus. That they might find something to accuse him of. And so, they said, tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Not so very long ago, I had someone saying to me, what's your thoughts on such and such a thing, Mr. Hutton? And as soon as I heard the words, I knew, oh yeah, you would like to draw me into controversy. I just simply said, I don't have an opinion. And my opinion isn't worth anything anyway. But you see, this is, this is the subtle way that some people have. And the Pharisees, they had counseled together. This is the question we're going to put to him. And we'll tangle him up. And then we'll have something to say against him. And so they said, tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But my look... But Jesus perceived their wickedness. Jesus perceived their wickedness. What kind of wickedness? The wickedness of the motive to entangle him. To twist what he would say. And to make him appear to be a traitor to the nation. Either he would not give tribute to the Romans or he would be a loyal Roman citizen or whatever. It was a subtle question to tangle him in, in controversy. But Jesus perceived their wickedness. He's, it was as though he could say to them, I know what you're up to. I know what you're at. One other occasion, my, the Savior, as I said, he had his own personality. And it is amazing to see how that personality comes out. And just marvel at how he dealt with things. How he knew how to deal with things. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, <clears throat> we have... The same thing, basically, again. They're trying to entrap the Savior. John chapter 8, we read uh, that the scribes, verse 3, and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, 
Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? What were we looking at in Matthew chapter 5? Repeatedly Jesus used the words, uses the words, but I say unto you. Ye have heard it said. But I say unto you. Now it's very possible that some in this company here may have even heard the Savior speak that way. So we'll find out what he's to say on this subject. We want to hear him say, I say unto you. So they bring this case to him. And it was very obviously a set up case. Verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that we that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. You remember what we read in Matthew chapter 22? Jesus perceived their wickedness. And he perceives their wickedness again here. He perceives it all right. He knows what they're at. What did he do? This they said, tempting him that they might accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground as though he heard them not. He just ignored them. He just paid no attention to them. Just ignored them. He wasn't going to waste his time with them. He wasn't, to get it, he wasn't going to get into controversy and an argument with them. These disciples are with him to learn. And this is one of the things they have to learn. How to respond to these kind of situations and these kind of motivated attacks. He says he sends them out as sheep among wolves. And they'll be criticized and they'll be scorned and they'll be imprisoned and they'll be beaten up and whatever. But you, you, you envisage the scene in your own mind. These are the scribes and the Pharisees. You don't ignore the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees weren't the kind of people you ignored. They were up there in a very elevated position. They were the authority. And so when they come to Jesus, maybe they expect to start shaking because... You don't ignore the scribes and the Pharisees. The ordinary person would be thinking, I'm in trouble somehow or other. I better be very, very careful how I answer, or I'm going to be in serious trouble. But Jesus was no spineless weakling, and he ignored them. So, verse 7, they continued asking him, Jesus, you don't ignore us. Don't you know who we are? What authority we've got? 
When we ask you a question, you have to answer it. What did Jesus do? So when they continued asking him, they weren't going to give up. He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And he again stooped down and wrote in the ground. You try to envisage that scene. Isn't it marvelous? It's amazing. You can't help but almost smile. These arrogant leaders who supposedly knew the law and they want to see if they can find some loophole. They want to find if they can accuse Jesus of disagreeing with Moses, disagreeing with the law. But Jesus, you see, perceived the wickedness behind it, the wicked motivation, and he ignored them. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Now, if this had occurred in this day and age, in the 21st century, what do you think people would be saying? When you hear these pious people, these nice, meek, and lowly people, and they'd be saying, Well, that's not a very Christian thing to do. If Jesus was around, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't ignore people. He would answer them. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And if you look down in chapter 8 of John, further down in the chapter, verse 29, listen to what he says. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I always, I do always those things that please him. It pleased God that Jesus ignored these scribes and Pharisees and paid no attention to what they were saying. You know something we've gotten ourselves in this 21st century into a state where we're not only so, we're just ignorant of scripture, we're ignorant of who Jesus actually was and of how he really acted. Jesus didn't answer every question. Jesus didn't engage in controversy with those whose hearts he knew and those whom he knew to be motivated by evil intentions to entrap him, to ensnare him, to entangle him. And what did Jesus say in these 12, 4, that they would be with him 
And they'd hear him. And they would see him. And they would learn in the great mission that they were to be sent on. Not to waste their precious time no more than those apostles in Acts uh, chapter 6 says. This is not good reason for us to neglect what we're called to, prayer and preaching the word. And Jesus was of the same mind. Your question is no reason for me to waste my time with you. His concern was that poor woman that was being accused by these religious Pharisees and scribes. And they were ready to stone her. And Jesus said, well, whichever one of you is without sin, you take up the first stone. And he just left them to think about it. And one by one, they all went out until he's left with a woman. And what did he say? Has no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. This is the Jesus of the early church. This is the Son of God in our nature. This is the Word made flesh. This is our Savior living in this world, preparing the foundation of the church, preparing these men that they might know how to deal with every situation. And as I said, the material that he he chose was really almost impossible. No one could have made anything of it except Jesus himself. You remember what he said to them? When he sent them out, they weren't to go into the Samaritan cities. They were not to go to the Samaritans. They were not to go into the Gentiles. Why? Because they weren't ready. He had a lot of teaching. He had to change their heads and he had to change their hearts. Look at what we have in the record of Luke chapter 9. Here's these disciples. They weren't allowed to go to Samaria. But here now we see why. Luke chapter 9 verse 51. It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, They said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? You just imagine, James and John, going into all the world and teach them to observe all things that I've commanded. And they go into a city and they do. And they rise up to chase them out. So we don't want your gospel. We don't want to hear you. All right, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll call fire down and burn the lot of them. That was the spirit they were of. Jesus said, 
ye know not what manner of spirit you're of. You see the job he had to get these men ready for the great work. He was going to have to change their minds and he was going to have to change their hearts and he was going to have to change their attitudes and their spirits. But what a job he made of them. This poor material that would turn the world upside down by the power of God and the power of the word as they devoted themselves to it. We must leave it there. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we thank thee for the church that exists throughout the world today for all thy dear people everywhere to the remotest corners of this earth. And it is all because thou didst work in the hearts and upon the minds, molding twelve men and preparing them that they would begin that great work. We thank thee for it. We thank thee for the mighty workings of the Spirit of God in the hearts of men, applying the word when it was preached and when it was taught. And we thank thee for the ruling Redeemer at God's right hand, who's controlling it all even to this very day. Open our understanding of thy word, that we might know and understand what thou hast revealed to us for our own good. Hear us now, apply thy word and pardon us. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.